0: morning everybody and uh, we're turning to the last few verses of Romans chapter 11 this morning uh, for our reading. You'll see that there are a couple of Old Testament quotations that are part of it. Verse 34 uh, is based on Isaiah 40. The hymn that we've just uh, been singing is also based on Isaiah 42. That's where it comes from. Verse 33, O the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen paul does this a lot it's a it's a characteristic of his you say what does he do a lot Um, he bursts out into spontaneous praise you read this quite a number of times uh, in his writings, there are different illustrations of this it 's almost as if he can 't contain himself he 's talking about something in particular about God, and it just seems to grip him so much that uh, he just lets it all out and he and he offers an ascription of praise like this one here uh, to god it 's a bit like what you come across in one of the psalms uh, psalm number forty five where the writer of that psalm describes himself as um, his heart just kind of bubbling over, flowing over as he as he recites his composition for the king. And uh, it's, it's like the, the lid of the kettle has been blown off uh, because everything's bubbling up so much. And that is exactly the situation with this reading here um, where he says... Oh, the the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the the knowledge uh, of God. So what we're going to be thinking about today, as you can see, is the worship uh, of God. We're going to try and find out what that means. We're going to try and uh, explore why it happens. Maybe finish up at the end by thinking about how... I can be a worshipper, a true worshipper uh, of God. So first of all then, what is the worship of God? Well, these, these verses, of course, are an, an, an example of that. Uh, this is frequently, along with other examples that are similar, referred to as a doxology, uh, which is a hymn or a statement or an expression of praise uh, to God. Worship is more than approval. Worship is bigger than admiration. It's something that's, that's greater than applauding or recognizing the importance of somebody. What worship is, is an awareness of the greatness and the majesty of someone above and beyond yourself to the extent that you you bow your heart uh, in wonder and in awe and in ad- and, and in reverence and adoration and it's something that is only rightly and and correctly ascribed to god and his son jesus christ because there is no one else who is worthy of that kind of response if i can put it in a negative way god is the only one who is pure he is the only one who is flawless without corruption without blemish, who is absolutely majestic in every sense, in his holiness and in his perfection and in his goodness. Giving worship to any other person or any other thing is described in the Bible actually as being idolatry because it is only God who is worthy of it. There was an occasion in the life of, of Jesus where a delegation of uh, Pharisees came to him. They were representing a Roman centurion. And they said to Jesus, This centurion has a servant uh, who's sick. And we would like you to go and heal him. And, and we think he is a worthy person. He's worthy. That you should do this. Because he loves our nation. And he's actually built as a synagogue here. In this town. So Jesus goes with them, And on the way the centurion actually comes out. And he says Lord. I don't want you to even come into my house. Because I am not worthy. That you do that. Just, Just say the word. And my servant. Will be healed. Worthy. Unworthy. There was an incident in the life of the early church. Some of the early apostles had been executed by, by King Herod, martyred. And um, Herod gets up with his entourage, with his acolytes all round about him. And Acts chapter 11 describes how he delivers a tremendous oration to the waiting masses. And they all they all applaud him, and they say, you know, this is the voice of a God, not of man. And and he laps it up, and he loves the applause. And God uh, uh, struck him down because of that attitude of heart. Now, you know, perhaps you're thinking, I mean, we're not so silly as to as to expect or think that worship can be given to a human being. Well, really, is history not full of examples of the, the worship, of the cult, of, of personality, or of ideologies, or of political positions? If I can take you back briefly to last some of the things I said last week uh, about prophecy... remember we read from second thessalonians chapter one about how this individual referred to as the man of lawlessness the man of sin the antichrist will one day step onto the stage of history you might want to read that chapter again this afternoon and you might also want to read the book of revelation chapter 13 he is referred to in imagery Uh, vocabulary as the beast. and What it says is this, that all the world will go after the beast. All the world will worship him. He will set himself up in the temple of God, claiming to be God, and expect the worship of humanity. Now that will take place after the church is snatched away. This tribulation period begins. And then finally Christ returns in power and glory to this earth to reign forever and ever. But that will happen. That is false worship. The worship of individuals and ideas. Not the worship of God. But in contrast to that, in Scripture... From beginning to end, there are so many examples of what true worship of God actually is. You you read the Psalms. Give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love. It endures forever. Of course, Jesus talked about what worship was john chapter 4 he met the woman at the well and as the conversation went on he said you know my father he is he's looking for worshipers those who will worship him in spirit and in truth now that's the thing you see sometimes we refer to ourselves as perhaps being a worshiper of god I am involved in worship. Let's do worship. At the end of the day, it's not me or you who says what is and what is not worship. It's God who says. Because it's God who knows our hearts. And he knows what we say or what we sing, what we confess, whether it's genuine or true or whether our motivation is right. And he assesses whether I am a worshiper or not. You see, a worshiper is to worship in spirit and in truth. Not, not, not with material things, not with physical things. You know, that doesn't constitute worship. It has to be from my heart. And it has to be according to truth. We can only come to God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Let me give you a couple of instances then of genuine, true worship. You remember the magi? You remember the the wise men who came all the way from the Orient? Because they, they saw the star and they knew a king had been born. More than a king. And as they come in and they see the child, the Christ child, it says that they came to worship him. And they bowed before him. And they looked on him and they did have an understanding about who he was. That this was God who had become human. The eternal contracted down but not losing any of his essential greatness or characteristics this was god manifest in flesh and they and they worshiped him as they as they gave their gifts that's worship a recognition of the wonder and awe of this tremendous mystery of god becoming man you think about a lady by the name of mary of bethany here are all the apostles and disciples some of them are arguing Wondering about money, and Mary walks in, and without saying anything, she didn't see a thing, she didn't sing a thing, but she perhaps shows the greatest example of worship that we have in the whole of the New Testament. What does she do? She took that costly box of ointment, that jar of spikenard from the plant up in the Himalayas, you know, worth. A year's wages. She breaks it and she anoints Christ. And the the perfume fills the house. And, and that is her expression of worship. And Christ knew that. Because even although she was criticized by the disciples. He said. Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. She anointed me before my burial. He understood what was in her heart. And her motivation. And that this was true worship. Another example, let me take you again to the last book of the Bible, this one, the wonderful scene in Revelation chapter 5, the multitudes of heaven. Yes, there are angels there, countless numbers of angels. There are other descriptions of the elders and the living creatures who surround the throne of God as the Lamb walks in. And when the Lamb comes, The Lord Jesus. They all begin to sing. Worthy. Worthy. Worthy is the lamb. That was slain. And has redeemed men to God. Men and women with his blood. That. Is worship. And then of course. We have Paul. Paul talking here. Paul expressing bubbling over. With his gratitude. And worship of God And of course he, as I said, does it in many places. If you want another example of Paul doing something similar, you go to First Timothy chapter one, where he says, "Now to the king eternal, the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only wise God be honor." And why does he do it there, by the way? He's just been talking about how God and his mercy came and saved him. He was the chief of sinners, he'd done done awful things in his life, and God had shown his mercy to him. And as he thought about that, how he had been forgiven, suddenly the top comes off the kettle, and he begins to praise God from whom all blessings flow. That is what worship is. But secondly, why does worship happen? Why does Paul worship in this passage that we're looking at today? Well, this doxology comes in straight after his discussion, if you've been following this, about the purposes of God. This was the point I didn't get to last week. That there were irrevocable promises made to the Jewish nation. Things that couldn't be changed. Despite the centuries having rolled on, what was said to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, you know, they would come to pass. So he's thinking about that, the irrevocable nature of God's promises. Indeed, it comes at the end of the whole section, this section in Romans, which really is from 9 to the end of 11, when, from our perspective, there have been a lot of difficult things that we've been kind of wrestling with. The sovereign purposes of God. How God works in, in the hearts of humanity. You know, this whole doctrine of God's election. This whole, this whole discussion about history and how, how God's purposes will pan out eventually. And, and, and we have looked at that and we find it difficult to understand but Paul, rather than concluding this section by saying, I know this is too difficult, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned this, let's just skip over it quickly, it's too challenging, we can't get to grips with it, what he does instead is he says, Oh, the depths. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom. He, he bows his heart in worship as he considers the greatness and the sovereignty. Of God, now, let me just point out to you when we come to this that uh, there are three things that by and large um, are mentioned in this in this doxolo- doxology, and the first one has to do with depth. there are some deep things. see that the depth of god 's riches now God is rich. <laughs> You know, Isaiah 40, the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. But it's not just in those terms that the heavens and the earth belong to God. It's in the it's in the depth of the riches of his mercy. Have you ever thought about the riches of God's mercy? I'm quoting to you from Ephesians chapter two. When it says there, but God who is rich in mercy, for his great love by which he has loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has has raised us up with Christ. There are tremendous depths to the riches of God's mercy. I mean you just think of, of the parable that Jesus taught about the prodigal son guy who just, you know, wrecked it all, wasted the whole thing. And he crawls back to his father, not really expecting very much. And the father just lavishing him with his forgiveness and with his love. And clothing him and putting the ring on his finger and, you know, the great feast of celebration is laid off. This was my son. I thought he was dead and he's alive again it's an example of the riches of the mercy of our Heavenly Father towards us. That's a reason to worship God. When you think about the riches of His mercy. Secondly, and we'll take these together. The depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I mean, God knows everything. There's not a thing that you can teach him. I mean, as it says there, that quote from Isaiah 40, who has been God's counsellor? Does God need a counsellor? Here is this situation. I'm looking down on the earth. All these problems and difficulties and wars. Uh, I think I need to bring in some counsellors here to hear their advice and what should be done. God doesn't need a counsellor. God doesn't need advice. He's not deficient in anything. You know, there are depths to God's knowledge and his wisdom. His ways are past finding out. His ways are higher than our ways. And of course, we know, know, don't we, that wisdom is, is beyond knowledge. There are a lot of people, you know, who are brainy and don't have much common sense. And perhaps don't even have wisdom. And they might know facts and figures. But when it comes to a situation. They don't seem to have the gumption of knowing how to apply that. When to say things. When not to say things for instance. How to intervene. How to act. How to have good judgment. There are depths to the wisdom. As well as to the knowledge of God. I mean the greatest wisdom of God is found in the cross of Christ. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2 again. What the world characterizes as foolishness, silliness, irrelevance, God says, this is is my wisdom. The wisest decision, the most appropriate and apt intervention that I have ever made was coming to the earth in the person of his son and taking upon myself the sin of the world, sacrificing myself that humanity can be forgiven, showing my love in this way. This is my greatest wisdom. This is the only way in which the issue of human frailty and sin can be dealt with. There's no other way. I have to pay the price. I have to take the blame. And God in his wisdom. Does this. I wonder. Whether we have worshipped God for that. We sang that of course today. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood. You shed. Taking all my sin. And my shame. I mean that is worship. And that is why worship is drawn from the hearts of people. When we think of the depths of the wisdom of God. Shown in the cross of Christ. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for taking my sins. We can say that right now. From the depths of our heart. Now, the third thing, uh, sorry, the second main thing here, not just are there depths that are spoken about here, but there are things that are unsearchable, deep and unsearchable about God. What does it say? His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable now the literal translation of that word inscrutable is this that his footsteps cannot be traced out we were in balmeri beach for a walk last night and um, there were lots of footprints in the sand some of them were birds some of them were barefoot children i think some of them were shoes and boots Lots of footprints. What it says here is that uh, you can't follow God's footprints. His ways are past finding out. They're inscrutable. You might try to follow where God is, but you cannot track him down. You can't go all the way. Because he is beyond us. He's unsearchable from that point of view. He's unsearchable, should I say, unless he had chosen to reveal himself and to show himself and to allow himself to be found, which is what he has done in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, who has manifested God, the revealer of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why he can say to us, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. And you will find him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is our opportunity today, this morning, to search for God, to seek for God. And the promise is that if we seek for him, we will find him. There's a depth, there is an unsearchable quality. And then the third thing from verse number 36 is, I was sad, to be honest, I was struggling to get a word here to, that, that kind of fitted this in. Uh, might not be just accurate enough, but the word I've chosen is all-encompassing. There is something that is all-encompassing about what God is like. You see how it puts that? From him, through him, to him. Are all things. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He is the beginning and He is the end. He is the first, the primary cause of everything. He is the creator of the universe. He's your creator. And mine. When nothing was, God was. He always has existed. When everything else may go and disappear, He will remain. Everything will one day find its objective in God. When the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. He is the first cause. He is the final conclusion. And he is the present and current process. He is the sustainer. He is the upholder of everything. Christ is described with these very words in Colossians chapter 1. That our world, you know, it's not just as though when God created the world it was like a clock that he wound up. And just let it run. No. He is currently actively involved in our world. He upholds it. He sustains it. You remember there was a king called Belshazzar. That Daniel had to interpret the writing on the wall. And one of the things as he interpreted that writing. That he said to Belshazzar was this. The God in whose hand. Your breath is, and whose are all your ways? You have not honoured. Thought about that? Your very breath, this next breath, this present breath that you're breathing, God holds that breath in His hand. He is the current involver in everything that we do, and and and, and Paul in his great doxology. He talks about this. He's aware of it. And that is the reason that he gives his worship to God. So many reasons. A thousand reasons that there are for us to be worshippers of God. In fact, you know, I actually read this from 1 Peter earlier on. It says, you know, even the angels long to look into these things. Do you know this, that... uh, we have more reasons than angels have for worshipping God. Don't know if you've ever noticed in Revelation 5, the multitudes of heaven, of which the angels are a part, it actually doesn't say, you have redeemed us. It doesn't read that. It says, you have redeemed men and women. They, they don't know personal redemption. They've never experienced The forgiveness of God and the love of God specifically in that way. They long to look into these things. They wish they could understand it all. But here are we. Those of us who have received and known and experienced the steadfast love of Christ. What a reason we have. Reasons more than anybody else to be a worshiper. Of God, and then there is the grand final crescendo conclusion. To Him, be glory, forever. Amen. Now that's Paul's doxology. That's his worship of God. That's his great outburst. And of course, the challenge, the lesson, the message, as we think about this, is. Paul was a worshipper of God. Am I? Have I a reason? Have I truly in awe and in wonder and in amazement and in reverence and in thankfulness bowed my heart before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and worshipped him? By the way, and this is next week's message, worship is not just what we say with our lips if you look at chapter 2 of verse 12 in view of the mercies of god you know present yourself as a living sacrifice that is your only reasonable and logical worship but that's for another day uh god willing may god bless his word to our hearts and shall we pray Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage. For Paul's great example of worshipping you. And you're so deserving of that. We think of all your greatness. The depths of your riches of mercy. All your unsearchable, inscrutable ways. The fact that you are the beginning and the end. The fact that you have sent your son, the Lord Jesus. And all your wisdom to be the sacrifice for our sins. Lord, how how can we be hard against that and unresponsive how can that not affect us so lord we pray that from all of our hearts there will be the genuine not just lip service but genuine worship and adoration that you can discern and that you know that comes from the hearts of people who are true worshipers of our lord jesus so lord we commend your word to all our hearts today and help us as we sing our final hymn Help us, Lord, to truly express this worship from our hearts, as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.